I thought I'd start with with a little basic background about influenza viruses, um, just to sort of set the stage for for why avian flu is a concern and and why we we worry about flu pandemics. Um, there are three types of influenza viruses, which which are grouped as A, B, and C. Um, but we we almost never hear about influenza C. We we get influenza A and B. Um, every winter when we have a flu epidemic, you're all probably very familiar with, with the winter flu. And this talk is going to primarily be about A viruses because um, this is a talk about avian and pandemic flu. And uh, while B viruses are very important during the, the winter flu seasons, um, B viruses tend not to infect birds and they don't cause pandemics. So I'm pretty much only going to be talking about A viruses today. Now, this slide, this slide does seem kind of um, scientific, and um, I only put it in because people keep asking me, what do the numbers mean? Um, you hear about H5s and H3s and Ns and, and numbers, and people say, well, well what, what do those numbers mean? Well, the, the H and the N, in the, the name of the flu virus refers to two proteins on the surface of the virus, hemagglutinin and neuraminidase. And these two proteins are very important in terms of um, the flu virus attaching to the, the host cell and creating an infection. And then um, once the, the cell has been infected and viruses have been replicated in the cell, they're important for release of, of virus out of the cell, which allows um, on infection of other people. Um, there are 16 types of, of hemagglutinins that are known, and they're basically just labeled 1 through 16. And the, the virus gets its H number from whatever of these 16 hemagglutinins it happens to have. Um, and there are nine neuraminidases, and it, it basically works the same way. Very, very few of these hemagglutinins and neuraminidases are found in human flu viruses. Um, currently, um, we have H1 and H3, and we have um, N1 and N2, and the combinations of those are H1N1 and H3N2, which are the, the A viruses that are currently in the, the flu vaccine and have been for many, many years. Um, even though there's, there's a new flu vaccine that's slightly different every year, um, for, for the last um, probably 20 years or so, we've been doing H1N1 and H3N2, plus a B virus every year. Now, um, influenza A viruses, um, as I mentioned, B viruses um, only infect people. A viruses can infect many different types of species, and, and um, most of them are illustrated here on the slide. We've got people, of course, and you've heard about uh, flu infections in birds, um, but horses, sea mammals, pigs, and, and many other animals can be um, infected by influenza A viruses. Now, moving on to the question of avian flu, um, I put this slide in. These are photographs that, that I got off the internet. Um, and, and I want to point out that the harbinger of doom is not a statement, it's a question. Um, and the, the picture on the right illustrates some of the, the um, fear that's surrounding this, this topic of avian flu and the perception that people have of this being a very serious and deadly problem. So avian flu, um, pretty much as, as it sounds, is a flu infection of a bird. Um, they are different strains from the ones that cause human infection. As I said, we have H1N1 and H3N2 right now in humans. Um, most of those other HNN numbers are, are animal and bird strains and uh, tend not to infect humans. Um, it's a natural type of infection. Um, Bird infections with flu happen commonly. We, we usually don't hear about them. The, the reason that H5N1 is so much in the news is, is partly because of this question of high, pathogen, high pathogenicity and low pathogenicity flu viruses, where some flu viruses are basically more serious than others. And uh, these are what we call the high pathogenic flu viruses. So if you hear about highly pathogenic avian influenza H5N1, that's what they're, they're talking about. And it basically means that the virus is very contagious among birds and has the potential for causing it. Not, not all highly pathogenic flu viruses can infect humans, 
but um, if they do infect humans, it has the potential for causing serious illness. Um, it spreads among birds. Usually, um, wild birds carry it. They may or may not get sick. Uh, when the wild birds come into contact with domestic poultry, um, poultry tends to be a lot more susceptible to avian flu viruses than wild birds, especially H5N1. And where you, you get these explosive bird outbreaks, it's usually because um, the virus has entered a poultry flock. And poult it's, it may be partly due to the fact that poultry are kept in, in closed environments and they have a lot of contact with each other. Um, and if you sort of think about um, nursing homes, where, where people have a, a lot of contact with each other in a, in a closed environment and how we have flu outbreaks there, these, these outbreaks in poultry tend to be fairly similar. And um, avian flu, as I mentioned, very rarely infects humans. However, when it does infect humans, it can cause a variety of diseases. Um, what we're seeing in H5N1 are um, generally typical flu symptoms, but, but it, it usually progresses to a, a fairly severe viral pneumonia. Um, some other um, avian flu viruses like H7N7 cause pretty much only conjunctivitis or, or what we know as pink eye. Um, and depending on the virus, it can be um, life-threatening. So H5N1, um, since that's the, the virus that everyone's interested in, a little uh, background. It was first identified in 1996 in a goose in China. And in 1997, there was an outbreak in Hong Kong where um, 18 people were confirmed with infection. Six of them died. And the government of Hong Kong um, were very concerned about this and uh, decided that the way to control this outbreak was to, to basically get rid of all of the chickens in Hong Kong, which was um, about 150 million chickens. And then the virus sort of went away, and we, we didn't hear about it for... Um, five or six years until February of 2003, when a family, um, a Hong Kong family, traveled to Fujian province in China. And while they were there, one of the family members became sick and died. And the rest of the family went back to Hong Kong. Um, they didn't know what the, the first family member had died of. Um, but the family went back to Hong Kong. And when they got back to Hong Kong, two more of the family members were ill. And these two were diagnosed with influenza H5N1. Now, if you, you think back to February of 2003 and put this in um, historical context, February of 2003 was exactly when another outbreak was, was identified. And at the time, we didn't know what it was, but there were many people um, becoming ill, not in Fujian province, but in Guangdong province in China. And that was later identified as um, an outbreak of infection from the SARS coronavirus, which... Um, had, had never been heard of before. But at the time, we, if, you, if you put this in, in the context of not knowing what SARS was, and here you have a family infected with H5N1, the international infectious disease community was, in, was very afraid that, that this was actually the start of a flu pandemic. It turned out to be a SARS pandemic, which, which was, was um, you know, who can say which would have been worse, but, but the SARS pandemic was relatively easily controlled in a short period of time. And since then, um, you've all heard pretty much every, every day or every week or so, another country is reporting cases of avian flu, um, either among humans or infections in birds. Um, these maps illustrate the um, spread of avian flu, or H5N1, since 2003. The, the areas in red um, our areas reporting infection in poultry, and the areas in yellow um, reported only in wild birds. So this is since 2003, but if we look at the map that shows uh, bird infections since January of 2006, you can actually see that there are uh, fairly large areas where, where the virus has actually been controlled. Um, so if you go back to, if I'll go back to the first one. This is, it's, this is cumulative, so, so everything since 2003 and just 2006. So, so it does look like the area that's affected is uh, shrinking somewhat. And then for human cases, um, the countries that have reported human cases are listed here. Not all of them are currently um, having infections. I'll show you, you a similar set of maps for people. 
Um, as of June 20th, the World Health Organization had reported 228 cases and 130 deaths, um, which gives us a death rate of approximately 50 percent. But um, I, I do want to, to qualify this by saying that the, the cases that the World Health Organization is reporting are, are generally people who are identified in hospitals. So it sounds like this very serious deadly disease with 50% with um, mortality rate. However, we don't really know that they aren't milder cases that, that we aren't recognizing and that aren't going to the hospitals and then are not getting counted. This may or may not be good news. On the one hand, it means that the death rate is lower. On the other hand, it means that a lot more people are infected that we don't know about. So sort of like, you know, which, which is the worst scenario? And then uh, these are the maps that show the distribution of human cases. This first map, um, similar to, to the bird maps, the first one shows um, human infections since 2003. And you can see human infections since January of 2006. So again, I'll flip back to the first one. You can see that the, the areas with human cases do tend to be shrinking a little. So we heard about um, avian flu spreading in birds, but how, how does it infect people? Or, or even how does it infect other birds? Well, the, the flu virus, when it infects a bird, is um, similar to to people when they get infected with flu, you know that they, you know, coughing and sneezing and, and, and everybody knows that, that mucus is um, contagious because it contains viruses. Well, it's pretty much the same thing in birds except that their feces are also contagious. So, so you have these, um, they, the birds tend to get a, a virally respiratory infection um, similar to people and then they, they also have um, feces that are contagious. And uh, the human infection pretty much results from having contact with these infected birds or contact with surfaces that are contaminated with either their, their respiratory infections or, or more commonly with bird feces. Um, and there, there's also evidence that you can become infected by eating raw poultry products. Um, it has not spread from person to person generally. There has been um, a fair bit in the news recently, um, especially in the last few weeks, about case clusters. You've probably all heard about a family in Indonesia where um, I believe it was seven family members became ill um, after having contact, or six family members became ill after having contact with one ill person. Um, and there, there have been other um, fam reports of, of spread within families. There was a, a woman in Thailand who became infected after caring for her sick child. But these, these clusters um, all have one thing in common in that these, these are people who are, have very, very close contact with a sick person. If you think of, of a woman taking care of a sick child, and if, if any of you have ever taken care of a child with a respiratory illness and how much snot and coughing and sneezing and close contact there is, and you can see how very easy it is to get infected in that type of situation. Um, very importantly, it's not spread beyond one person. So, so you don't have a situation where uh, somebody is sick, they infect somebody else, and that person infects one or more other people. It's always stopped at that, that first um, transmission step. And another very important thing, um, if you think about SARS and how many doctors and nurses and other health co-workers, um, EMTs, who, um, who became sick taking care of, of people sick with SARS, this hasn't happened with H5N1, even though in, um, in most of the countries where people um, have been infected with H5N1, the, the healthcare workers tend to work without protective equipment. They may not have gloves and masks and, and the types of things that we have. And even in that type of scenario, um, no healthcare workers have been reported ill. So people always say, well, you know, what happens when, when birds in this country become infected? Um, it's, it's pretty likely to happen because if you look at um, migratory bird pathways, I mean, we, we get birds that, that come from Europe and Asia and they, they fly to the U.S. So, so it's probably going to happen at some point that infected birds from, from Europe or Asia will, will fly to our country and infect the local birds. But you know, what does that mean to, to people living in this country? Well, I've put up here, again, these are just pictures I pulled off the internet, um, but these pictures actually illustrate 
pretty well the types of interactions that people have with birds um, in places like Asia, um, Eastern Europe, um, parts of Africa, where people, they, they, ha they live with birds. Um, they work in live bird markets. They have um, a lot of very close contact with poultry that we don't have in this country. I mean, I, I can't remember the last time I touched a chicken, if ever, um, touched a live chicken. And and we we just don't, I mean, we don't have these types of, of exposure risks um, in this country. We, we're not living with poultry. Our children don't play in backyards that are contaminated with poultry feces. And um, we, we just don't have these types of exposures. So I'm not going to say that if birds become infected in this country, nobody is going to get sick. But the people who are really at risk are the ones who work with poultry, poultry workers. Um, or um, I know that the Lincoln Park Zoo is working very hard to, to make plans for if their bird populations become sick. But for the general population, I think the risk is actually fairly low. Now, um, just for comparison, because I, I do talk later about um, pandemic flu and um, the types of flu that spread from person to person, um, again, something we're familiar with every year from the flu season, how does flu spread from person to person? Um, generally by what we call uh, respiratory droplets, which um, are what, you, you've all seen sort of like those freeze frame pictures of sneezing. You know, somebody sneezes, droplets come out and, and spread in the air. and um, we tend to call those uh, respiratory droplets, and um, they tend not to, for, for flu viruses, the, the droplets that carry flu viruses tend not to travel over great distances. Usually, um, by the time they've gone three feet, they're kind of heavy and they, they settle out of the air. So, so this isn't something that we, we worry about, you know, somebody in one room coughing and sneezing and somebody in another room is going to get sick. There are diseases that will spread like that, or somebody coughing in a room um, leaves the room, somebody else comes in. You know, by the time something like that happens, flu viruses tend to settle out of the air. Measles, on the other hand, would stay in the air long enough to infect the second person, or tuberculosis, but flu tends not to do that. So the best way really to prevent the spread of flu is what we call covering your cough. And this is a message that, you know, everybody's mother or grandmother or, you know, um, preschool teacher or whoever taught them when they were a little kid, if you're coughing, cover your mouth. And it's actually very good advice because it does stop things like flu from spreading. The other way that flu spreads is through hand contamination. So um, as I said, these, these virus particles tend to settle out on surfaces. Um, also, you know, if people are being diligent and covering their cough, but then they don't wash their hands, things that they touch can become contaminated. And then people who touch those, you know, either shaking somebody's hand, it always amuses me when, when people say, oh, don't kiss me, I've got, you know, I've got a cold, and then they'll shake your hand. <laughs> and if you think about how they've been coughing, you know, all over their hand, now they've touched your hand and your hand is contaminated. Um, but of course we know that flu viruses don't go through skin. So, so it does take an extra step and that step is rubbing your eyes, rubbing your nose, rubbing your mouth. So the way to prevent this is by washing your hands. If you think your hands are dirty, if you've touched something that you think might be contaminated, wash your hands. And, and that's really um, the other way. So covering your cough and washing your hands, something that everybody learned from their mom, um, is how flu is prevent, uh, spread of flu is prevented. Getting back to H5N1, um, another big question, is there a vaccine? Well, there is a vaccine, um, it's, it's an, or at least there is a vaccine under development that's being tested in research studies. Um, it's not commercially available, and, for, and unfortunately, the, the vaccines that they've developed so far are not especially good. So, so the concern is that, yes, we might be producing vaccines, but will they actually work? And this is a big unknown. Um, as I mentioned, there, there is an annual flu vaccine. Um, it has H1 and H3 viruses, but it doesn't have H5N1, so it's not going to protect you, unfortunately, against this virus. And then there's the question of treatment. Um, flu viruses are treated with antiviral medications, which work sort of similarly to antibiotics. Um, there are two different kinds, two sort of like broad categories 
of flu antivirals. There's an older group called amantadine and romantadine. They're um, fairly two medications that are fairly similar. And there's, there's a newer group um, which are known as Tamiflu and Relenza. And um, H5N1 is, is actually um, predominantly resistant to amantadine and romantadine, which is unfortunate because these drugs are very cheap and, and pretty readily available. Um, Tamiflu and Relenza are much more expensive and not as readily available, but it seems that they will probably work for treating H5N1, although um, there haven't been enough sick people and, and any studies done to actually test this, so it's, it's not known for sure. Um, and there is also some evidence that there may be um, Tamiflu resistance, which, which may be a problem, although it has been very rare. And what do you do if you're traveling to a place like Indonesia or China and you're worried about avian flu? Well, CDC hasn't recommended that people stop traveling. Um, traveling is fine as long as you take a few small precautions. Um, it is recommended that people who are traveling get the, the regular flu vaccine if it's available. Now, I did say that the regular flu vaccine is not going to protect you against H5N1, and that's true, but um, it will protect you against regular flu, and um, all of these places do have regular flu viruses as, as well, and um, if you get sick in a country, um, well, at least it'll, you know, it'll, pre it'll prevent flu infections, and um, if you do get sick, it'll help um, try to sort out diagnostically what you might have. Now, if you do travel to a place like Indonesia or Turkey or China, um, firstly, I'm a little jealous of you. <laughs> Secondly, um, stay away from birds. That's that's pretty much the, the best advice. And, and it's not something that's so hard to follow. You know, just don't go to the poultry farms. Um, try not to go to any live food markets. Or if you have to go to live food markets, don't touch the animals. Um, try not to touch any surfaces that are contaminated with bird feces. Again, not things that are difficult to follow. Uh, wash your hands. Um, if you're going to um, a place where you might be cooking, if you're touching raw poultry, wash your hands. Um, you can eat the poultry and the eggs. There's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with eating chicken and eggs, even in a place like Indonesia, as long as you cook it. Um, and if you're cooking it, wash your hands. Um, when you get back or, or while you're traveling, um, monitor your health. So basically, um, if you have a fever or if you develop a cough, see a doctor and tell the doctor that you've been traveling. It's really not a difficult message. Now, that's all I was going to say about the current avian flu situation. Is there, are there any questions before I move on to pandemic flu and, and um, pandemic flu planning? It's not the same vaccine every year, but it has the same... Um, types of flu in it. So every year we have a vaccine that has um, an H1N1 virus, an H3N2 virus, and a B virus. But flu viruses change, um, and they, they change constantly by a mechanism that we call antigenic drift. And um, antigenic drift just means a slow, a slow mechanism of mutation, so that this year's H3N2, vac this year's H3N2 virus is going to be just slightly different from last year's H3N2 virus, but, but different enough that last year's vaccine won't protect you against this year's flu. Um, actually, now that I've said that, I don't know what's in this year's vaccines <laughs> and whether or not they've changed it. They don't change them every year. It's, it's kind of um, a confusing process making flu vaccines because um, every year during flu season, the, the international community collects viruses from all around the world and they analyze them and then in about February or March, they look at all these viruses from, from the previous winter and try to predict what's going to be the predominant flu strain the following year. So it's, it's kind of a tricky process, and they, they have to make this prediction early enough so that the flu vaccines can be produced in time for the winter because flu vaccines are grown in eggs, and it's a very slow, um, slow mechanism of production. So, so they need that sort of like eight to 10 month period of time to make enough flu vaccines so that everyone can get vaccinated the following year. But, but because these, these viruses change, um, they do have to, have to make a new vaccine every year. They, they usually change 
uh, one to two of the strains in the vaccine. They don't, they don't change all three of them, but they usually change one or two of them every year. How long does the H5N1 virus live outside of uh, the body or the host? I know that varies depending on the type of virus. Yeah, I don't know specifically about how long H5N1 lasts on surfaces. Regular flu viruses tend to last 24 to 48 hours on a hard surface um, and probably about 8 to 12 hours on, on something like fabric. But um, I, I don't know specifically how long H5N1 lasts. I, I would expect it would be fairly similar. Yeah, hi. I was wondering if you're aware of or you have an opinion about the hypothesis by some virologist. And uh, in this country, there's a history professor named Mike Davis at the University of California at Irvine about how H5N1 became a highly pathogenic avian influenza virus. Are you familiar with that? I haven't heard that theory. Have you? Well, basically, it's, it has to do with the way chickens are produced, like you mentioned in your talk, that basically in a room this size, there would be anywhere from 25 to 30,000 chickens. Um, and this methodology is not just used now in the United States. Um, there's basically a wealthy Chinese family in Singapore that are billionaires that have worked with the Chinese government <laughs> for the last 15 years to build these factories to compete with Tyson and Purdue. And this hypothesis is actually based on some one Chinese virologist who said that the goose that you identified in 1996 came into contact with one of these factories in Guadong, which is right next to Hong Kong. And, and I think the relevance here to the United States is the fact that this is the way most of our chickens produced. And these are supposed to be a kind of biosecure facilities. And the fact is, is that in a lot of cases, we don't know if they are not because most of the regulations are voluntary. Yeah, I don't know um, what, what they meant by how it became highly pathogenic. Um, I think that some viruses are just more pathogenic than others. But in terms of how the virus spreads among poultry, I mean, we, we know from other, other infections like Salmonella and Campylobacter that housing chickens in close quarters where they're all essentially bathed in each other's feces does a lot towards uh, spreading bacteria among birds and, um, and, and viruses as well. So I think it, it definitely contributes to the spread of infection, but, but as to the actual pathogenicity, that's, that's a, a property of the virus itself, and I would think that that occurred naturally. Okay, shall I carry on, or one more question? I just wanted to know, is, so it's only the two uh, strains of influenza that are around, or is, more um, is it two or three? Well, there, there's H1N1, H3N2, and we usually have one or two B viruses circulating each year. So, so it's usually three to four strains that we, we see each year. And in the vaccine, we have the two A viruses and um, one B virus. But when it comes to avian uh, viruses, they have always been there, but they have never infected humans until N recently. No, right? that's not true. I mean, yeah. they, they have always been there. Uh -huh. Uh, that, that part is true, but, but actually I, I do have, um, I, I didn't put it into this talk, but there have been, um, not, not as many as this, but there have been infections with avian flu viruses that have been recognized for many years. And we've, we've only really had the technology for, for identifying viruses for, you know, probably the last hundred years or so. And the surveillance mechanisms, you know, if people became sick, you know, maybe nobody was looking for avian flu viruses. So, so I think part of the reason that we're seeing so much more about avian flu is that people are looking for it. And if you look for something, you'll find it. If you're not looking, you know, who's to say if it's there or not? Um, but there have been um, human infections with other avian flu viruses that have been documented going back probably about the last 20 years. But this, I think this would be the classified as the largest outbreak. Okay, so I'm going to move on to the second half of my talk, which is pandemic influenza. Well, first of all, what is it? And, and how is it different from this avian flu situation? Well, um, basically it's a, world, a worldwide outbreak of a new influenza virus. Although, as I mentioned before, we would actually have called the SARS situation a pandemic. So it can really be a worldwide outbreak of anything. Uh, there's an AIDS pandemic, um, as as we we heard about in the last talk. So really, it's a world a worldwide outbreak of anything. But in terms of pandemic flu, it's a worldwide outbreak of flu. Um, and the the fact that um, the calling it a pandemic relies on it being a new virus. So so 
even though we see H3N2 virus around the world every year, we don't call it a pandemic because H3N2 is, is a fairly old virus. Pandemics occur infrequently and at irregular intervals. Um, there were three pandemics in the 20th century, and I believe about 30 pandemics since the 1500s. So, so they're, they're certainly not something new, um, but they, they don't happen very often. They are completely unpredictable. So um, if you ask me, you know, is there going to be a, a pandemic of flu? I, I would have to say I don't know because it's, it's really not possible to say. And they have substantial um, impact, um, both in terms of illness and death, um, social disruption. If you, if you think about, again, I, I, I keep going back to SARS because SARS is a very good recent illustration of, of, a, of a pandemic, um, and how much um, social impact there was in terms of people's interactions with each other, um, things like events being canceled, travel being stopped, the, the economic impact in the trade industry, um, there, there was a, a pretty big social and economic Im impact. And it was a relatively small event that, that only affected a few, infected about few, a few hundred people. Now, as I mentioned, there were three pandemics in the 20th century. Um, in 1918 and 1919, um, pretty much at the same time that World War I was happening, there was an, an outbreak of what was called at the time Spanish flu. And this was actually um, the first time that, that the virus H1N1 infected people. Um, as, as you heard earlier, H1N1 is one of the viruses that circulates now every year. And that's what happens to pandemic flu viruses. They don't go away. They just become so common that they become the regular um, seasonal flu. Um, the 1918-1919 pandemic caused 500,000 deaths in the United States and over 20 million deaths worldwide. And it's become the standard at which people talk about pandemics and like how how bad could it possibly be? Well, they say, you know, it could be as bad as 1918. And, and that's how we, we tend to talk about, you know, like the worst of the worst pandemics. Um, in 1957 and 1958, there was um, a second, another pandemic, which was called Asian flu um, caused by the virus H2N2 and caused about 70,000 um, deaths in this country. And when H2N2 started infecting people, H1N1 actually went away. Um, and for, for a period of time, from 1958 to 1968, the, the regular flu seasons, when, you know, once the pandemic was over, the regular flu seasons were H2N2. And in 1968, um, H2N2 was replaced by H3N2, which is one of the viruses circulating now. Um, and that, that was actually a relatively mild pandemic, which caused 34,000 um, deaths in this country. And if you want a, a comparison, um, every year in this country, we, we see about 36,000 deaths from influenza. Now, back in 1968, it probably would have been closer to 15 to 20,000 just because of um, the, the population dynamics. So it would have been lower then, but, but that's 34,000 is not any more than... Um, the annual influenza deaths that we have in this country. Now, just to uh, complete the history, in 1977, I said that H1N1 uh, went away in 1957. It came back in 1977, and everybody thought that there was going to be an H1N1 pandemic because um, there hadn't been H1N1 circulating for over 20 years. Um, but it didn't. It, it didn't cause a pandemic, and nobody knows why. But now we do have H1N1 and H3N2. And I don't know if any of you were paying attention to the news back in about May of last year when uh, there was this, this news story about uh, flu samples that had been sent to hospital laboratories by the American College of Pathologists for the purpose of testing and training. And then there was this big furor and, and all the, the flu vaccines, I mean, all the flu samples that were sent out had to be destroyed and everybody was, was worrying about them. And the reason for that was that the, the virus that was sent out was actually H2N2, which was a human flu strain that we, that we know could cause a pandemic and to which anybody born after 1958 has absolutely no immunity. So, so it was actually uh, quite a concerning event, which fortunately didn't have any serious ramifications. Uh, this is just a, a photograph from 1918, which, which illustrates the, um, 
the, the impact that this um, infection had on many communities. So how, how does a pandemic happen? I mean, how is it different from what we see every year? Well, you need to have four things. You need a, a flu virus that's new. So uh, basically a, few, a flu virus that nobody has any immunity to. Um, because even though this year's H3N2 is different from last year's H3N2, um, most people have some immunologic memory to H3N2, and even if you get infected, it'll probably be a relatively mild infection, and a lot of the population um, will have immunity. You know, even though a lot of people get infected, it's, it's not that um, serious an event because of the, the memory of the other H3N2 viruses that you've seen in the past. So you need a new virus. The virus has to be capable of causing disease in humans. It's, you know, it's no sense trying to, to worry about bird viruses that have never caused disease in humans because most of them don't. Um, you have to have a susceptible population. This goes back to the fact that it's a new virus and there's no immunologic memory. And the virus has to be transmissible from person to person. So um, the current flu situation, avian flu, H5N1, there's, there is a new virus. It does cause disease in humans, um, as evidenced by the disease in humans. Uh, we are susceptible because none of us have any immunity to H5N1. But the key that's missing is this number four, that the virus is not transmissible from person to person. And that's why we say you know, pretty emphatically, this is not a pandemic situation. It's a pandemic in birds, for sure. It's spreading very rampantly through the bird populations of Asia and Europe and now, unfortunately, Africa, but it is not a human pandemic. So where do flu, new flu strains come from? Well, um, pretty much um, from animal strains, and usually it takes a mixing of a human, an a human strain and an animal strain to, to allow the... Um, the virus to spread efficiently from human to human. And that's the problem with the H5N1 virus in terms of spreading. I mean, the problem from the virus's point of view is that it can't spread from person to person because it's still a pure bird virus. And the, um, the receptors that the virus has to attach to are not well adapted, and, and it's very difficult for that virus to infect people. So either um, mixing of a human or animal strain or in some other way through mutation, um, an adaptation has to occur that allows that virus to attach efficiently to human cells. Now, in terms of pandemic planning, the World Health Organization has put together a chart. It's sort of like our, our color chart for, for bioterrorism or you know, the, the state of the nation's security. Well, this is the chart for, for avian or pandemic flu, at any rate. Um, phases one and two here um, we, we've basically beyond that. Um, low risk of human cases, or, or actually um, interpandemic phases, basically there's no viruses, or there could be a new virus in animals with no human cases. Where, where we are is uh, phase three here, where there is a virus, there is a new virus, and there are human cases, but there's no transmission from human to human. And even though there are those limited clusters, the World Health Organization has said that that is not... Um, enough transmission to raise it to the next level, which is evidence of increased human-to-human -human transmission. Now, SARS, um, I would probably put at stage five, evidence of significant human-to-human -human transmission, but not um, evidence of widespread and sustained and efficient human-to-human -human transmission, which would be um, a, a true pandemic. So SARS pretty much ended at phase five. Well, why do, we, why do we care about a pandemic? Um, there, there are actually many issues that, are, that concern us. Um, one is that our society has become very global and that people can travel around the world very rapidly on planes or you know, various other conveyances. And um, we also trade a lot more than, than we did in 1918. I mean, if you think back in 1918, um, you know, to get to, to across the Atlantic, you had to take a, a ship, and it took several weeks. You know, you could do it now in you know, a matter of hours. Um, and, and again, you know, I hate to keep going back to SARS, but, but there's ample evidence of how quickly viruses can spread around the globe 
um, through people becoming infected in one place and then traveling to another um, where they then became sick and infected other people. There's a concern that our medical resources may be insufficient. Um, you're all aware of how um, our hospitals are, are operating pretty much at capacity. And if you had to add in another you know, 10,000 or, or 20,000 or 100,000 infections that need to be treated on top of our already stressed medical system, we, we could run out of medical resources pretty quickly. Um, again, as we saw in SARS, medical personnel are pretty much at the highest risk for infection when you've got um, a virus that spreads easily from person to person. And unlike SARS, which we managed to control in um, a matter of months, flu spreads, regular flu is a lot more infectious. And there's the likelihood that the pandemic would last for, you know, if not um, a year or two, and probably uh, around a year or two, the pandemic would last. And then there's the, the potential for community and infrastructure disruption and economic impact. Now, people have done a fair bit of modeling trying to figure out how bad could a pandemic be. And uh, one estimate that, that I usually refer to is the estimated impact of a, of a medium level. So we're not talking about 1918 level pandemic, we're talking more like a 1958 level pandemic. Um, it's estimated that about 35% of the population could be affected, which in this country would be around 47 million people becoming ill with the flu. Um, of those people, it's estimated that about 700,000 would require hospitalization and 200,000 um, would die. And the economic impact of such an event would range between 70 billion and 165 billion. Now, that's the doom and gloom. Um, on the bright side, we are working very hard um, at the, the local level which is where I work, state, national, international level, to prepare for a possible influenza pandemic. Um, one of the things that has been dramatically increased in recent years is surveillance. And um, this is mostly done at the national and international level with um, CDC and the World Health Organization. But it also has roots in the local level because um, this is, you know, usually if we're, if we're looking for flu infections, we look for them locally and then um, submit specimens to the national labs. Um, SARS was pretty much a dress rehearsal for a flu pandemic. Um, as bad as it was, and, and it, it was pretty bad, it did give us a very good idea of what we have to do to prepare for a flu pandemic and, and the types of activities that might have to be um, undertaken to control it. And um, it is important to remember that, you know, even though we say 1918 was the standard for the absolute Armageddon of how bad could a pandemic be, in 1918 our medical systems and our isolation capacities were fairly primitive. Uh, we didn't know as much about hygiene as we know now, and, um, well, there was also a war going on. So, so it is very hard to say, well, you know, it could be as bad as 1918 when you take all of that into account. Um, I, I mentioned um, the, the enhanced surveillance that's going on internationally for new flu viruses. And I just wanted to mention really briefly um, the new international health regulations, which the World Health Organization put together. That It basically took them the last 10 years to, to come up with these recommendations. And they're the first revision of the health regulations since 1969. And basically what it, what it is, is is a decision tree and a reporting mechanism for countries to um, notify the World Health Organization if there are cases of concern. And in some cases, like I, I, I don't think you're going to be able to read this, but in some cases, if um, in this box, a single case of certain diseases such as smallpox, uh, polio, um, a new strain of influenza or SARS need to be reported immediately, even if there's only one case. Um, things that may be important and we don't know what they are, um, or some other diseases that may or may not be important, like uh, cholera. Probably a single case of cholera is not that important. An outbreak of cholera is very important um, and, and would need to be reported. And then there's a sort of, for, for these two boxes, um, a little decision-making um, algorithm to follow 
um, to determine if you need to report to the World Health Organization. Now, um, the goals of pandemic flu planning, um, there are basically three of them. Uh, we want fewer people to become sick and fewer people to die, that's number one. We want to limit the amount that society is disrupted by the spread of the virus, that would be two. And we want to limit the economic loss. And, you know, I know it sounds callous to talk about, you know, dollars and, and the economy when people are sick, but, but this really could be quite devastating um, to the national economy, and that affects everybody. Um, planning has to engage all levels of the healthcare system, um, including public health and emergency response. Uh, we, we need to work with both the public sector and the private sector. And um, very importantly, um, we need to remember that, that a pandemic is not the only thing that we need to be prepared for. I think Hurricane Katrina was a perfect example of that, in that everybody's preparing for bioterrorism and smallpox, and all of a sudden there's a big hurricane, and you know, the, the um, disaster came from an area that you weren't expecting. So it's very important to, whatever you're planning for, plan globally for, for multiple types of um, events. In terms of local planning, we are working on um, enhancing our disease surveillance, making recommendations for laboratory testing, um, making plans for antivirals. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about antivirals in a few minutes, and vaccine distribution if there is a, a pandemic flu vaccine. Um, containment plans, including isolation and quarantine. Now, this is something that we in America are not used to. The idea that you might be sick or even not sick, you might be exposed to a sick person and the government will take away your personal freedoms and make you stay at home or make you stay in a special facility. And that's something that we as Americans do not Think, well, we haven't thought about much and don't like to think about. We don't like to think that the government has, has the, the ability to say, yes, we know you're not sick, but you were exposed to this person who is sick and you have to stay here for the next two weeks. That's something that we're really not used to thinking about. Uh, surge capacity, mortuary issues, and mass care. This is basically just, you know, we need to make sure that we have more capacity to take care of sick people and unfortunately, more capacity to take care of dead people. We, we don't want to be in a situation of, you know, bodies piling up in streets. And, you know, it's, it sounds kind of morbid, but it's something that we have to think about ahead of time. Um, making sure we have mechanisms of communicating accurate information to people. Um, this would be both people in hospitals who need, import, who need medical information um, and to the public who need information on how this is affecting them and how they protect themselves. Now, the big questions then are, you know, what are we going, how are we going to treat this? How are we going to stop it from spreading? Well, we're very used to thinking about flu vaccines and we rely on flu vaccines every year to minimize the impact of the flu, the annual flu epidemic. Now, as I said before, it takes many months to make flu vaccines. Um, you need billions of fertilized eggs, and you need to grow the virus in the eggs and then do a whole lot of pr um, purification and, and processing. And it does take at least six months to, to create a, fair, you know, a, a good sized quantity of flu vaccines that would be useful to, to a large number of people. And of course, we don't know exactly what this virus is going to be. Again, it goes back to this issue of trying to predict what the, the, the flu strain is that we need to be preparing for. We do it every year for even for, for the, the strains that we know about every year, we still have to kind of do a bit of guesswork to figure out exactly which um, strain goes in the vaccine. And if we're trying to plan for a pandemic when we don't even know when the pandemic's going to happen and what strain it's going to be. It may be H5N1, um, it may not be H5N1, and if it is H5N1, well, there's at least three H5N1 circulating in Europe. Which one do you choose? So, so you could say, well, let's make all the H5N1 vaccines now, but we run a serious risk of that vaccine not working um, when a pandemic actually starts. So if we assume that we'll have to wait till the pandemic starts 
to design the vaccine and produce it, you have to give at least a six to eight month lag time till we have the vaccines available. And when it does become available, we will we'll most certainly not have enough for everybody. And then we're going to have to make some very serious decisions about who gets that vaccine. Do we protect um, the people who are at most risk of dying? Do we protect the people who are at most risk of infection? Or do we just say it's a lottery, you know, first come, first serve? And, and those are, are very, very important decisions that need to be made at, at high levels. Um, and antiviral medications, as I mentioned before, the, the um, H5N1 is resistant to the cheap and plentiful medications. So, so we're kind of stuck with the more expensive and not readily available ones. And um, again, stockpiling is going on but uh, stockpiles are limited. They're certainly not enough for everybody, and we're going to have to make some very tough choices about who gets the antiviral medications. So having said that, what can we do to control a pandemic? Well, finding people who are sick and removing them from society, rem not removing from society, but removing them from a situation where they can infect other people is really going to have to be the number one priority. That um, people who are sick get evaluated, get tested, and, and get isolated. Um, and then there's the people that they were with during the period that they were sick, so their families um, will have to be monitored for illness so that if they become sick, they too can be isolated. And this may um, bring up this component of quarantine in that do we wait for them to become sick and then isolate them, or do we remove them before they become sick and, and decrease the chance of further exposures? And then there's um, the basic infection control measures, going back to this covering your cough, washing your hands. Um, that's so important and, and will be very, very important in a pandemic. And um, finally, there's, there's a fairly new concept that did come into play during the SARS um, outbreak and which um, will probably be very important in a pandemic that we call social distancing. And this is something that people haven't really thought about, but if you think about um, you know, what if you're on the subway and one person is sick? Well, might it not have been better to not be on the subway? And, and could, could we think about, you know, closing down public transportation to stop people from being sick? I mean, these are decisions that, that really need to be thought out and, and really, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of thought go into these processes. Likewise, um, you know, do we allow events like the Taste of Chicago or... Um, every, every weekend in Chicago, there's a festival. Do we allow that to go on when there's the possibility that people could be sick and infecting other people? Um, might it not be better to close all the special events? And the schools, because um, traditionally, flu spreads very, very quickly in schools. Kids are little petri dishes when it comes to viruses. Um, they, they cough, they sneeze, they spread viruses all over the place. And um, I believe many of you are educators, so you're probably aware of how rapidly a respiratory virus can spread in a school. Again, I'm not saying that these things will happen. They're just things that will have to be discussed at high levels, and some, some of these measures may be implemented in a pandemic. Um, I think I've gone over most of this, but I'd just like to, to run through it again. Basic messages to spread to prevent the spread of flu um, and other respiratory viruses. Um, if you're not sick, how to protect yourself from be being sick? Wash your hands. Stay away from people who are sick if you can help it, and get a flu vaccine if we're talking about regular flu season. For sick people, cover your cough is probably the most important one. Wash your hands because. When you, when you cover your cough, you cough in your hands, your hands are contaminated. And very importantly, if you've got a friend or a family member who's in a hospital or in a long-term care facility, just don't visit them. Um, and then there's this question of uh, the workplace and the school environment, um, staying out of, of places where you could infect other people um, is, is another very um, important thing. And then in terms of planning, um, 
at the personal or, or corporate or school level. For, for workplaces, again, encouraging respiratory and hand hygiene, making sure that supplies are available so that there are sinks, that the sinks are stuffed with soap and paper towels. Again, it's something very, very basic. Um, you shouldn't even have to think about it, but, but ensuring that, that those things are in place is so important. Um, if people are diagnosed with flu or, or if they're having severe respiratory illness with a fever, just leave them at home. <laughs> you, you don't want these people. Nobody is, is that valuable an employee that they need to be at work infecting everybody else. Um, planning to, to function with high levels of absenteeism is something that every business or, or workplace should be thinking about and creating mechanisms for employees to work from home if possible. And again, this is going to depend on the workplace. Obviously, the, the people in the retail industries can't work at home, but people in office buildings often can. Preparedness in schools. Um, again, your number one message has to be hygiene, the cover your cough, wash your hands. And I've put posters there because there are actually um, a variety of posters available free on the internet or even um, designing your own. These two are a couple that are produced by CDC. And it basically just says uh, precisely what I've been saying. Cover your mouth and nose when you cough and sneeze. Wash your hands. Um, and um, I don't know what else it says. But, but that's pretty much the basic message. Disease surveillance. Um, if, you're, if you're working in a school environment, you need to be aware of of who is coming in and whether those people are sick. And creating mechanisms for systematic exclusion of sick students and staff is going to be very, very difficult. Um, but, but again, it's something that's going to have to be addressed. If we're, if we're in a pandemic situation and people are becoming infected, um, if we're, we're either talking about closing the schools or we have to make the schools a safer environment. And one way to do that is at the door um, evaluating every person who comes in, whether they be a staff member or a student, and, and if they're sick, not letting them in. And this, again, is something that we're not used to doing. And then considering what might happen if the schools are closed. Again, I'm not saying they will be. Um, I'm not even sure who makes the decision to close the schools. But if that decision is made, um, there need to be mechanisms in place for continuity of education. We can't just say, we're going to close the school, um, recognizing that a pandemic could go on for weeks to months or even years and, and just not educate the students. And then you have to have a mechanism for reopening them and, and how to, what you base that decision on as well. And then there's also this, this question of, you know, even if we don't close the schools, are people going to stop sending their kids there? And, and that's what we, we refer to as self-shielding, that um, because there, there will be this, this um, surrounding fear that, you know, if, if kids are getting infected in schools, well, I'm not going to send my child to school. And even if you don't close the schools, it, it may be done for you, essentially, by people keeping their kids home. And then personal and family emergency. This is not specifically limited to flu, but, but basically for any type of emergency scenario, um, I've kept it very, very brief. There are reams and reams of information on the internet on this type of thing, but um, every family should have a disaster kit, which should provide general supplies for, for emergencies for approximately three days. And the types of things that could be in it, I mean, food and water, um, if you're stuck in cans, stuck a can opener, have some cash on hand in case the ATMs are not operating, um, blankets, flashlights, batteries, a radio, that type of thing. It's, it's your, your general disaster preparedness kit. Um, a family emergency plan. If there's a disaster, where do we meet up? Um, having people's medical records available. If you have a family member with special needs or a pet, um, making special preparations for them. And knowing where to access accurate information. And then finally, um, there's a lot of discussion in certain circles about antivirals. And since they're a fairly scarce resource, should we all be stocking our own supplies? Or should a company be stockpiling um, antivirals for their employees? And I would just like to say that it's a very, very bad idea. <laughs> 
Um, there are a number of reasons for this. Uh, one is that if, if everybody went out and bought a course of Tamiflu, there'd, there'd pretty much be nothing left for the hospitals and for the public health um, programs who need to, to use these medications to control outbreaks and to treat sick people. Um, and since even though we're, we're thinking about pandemics, we still have to think about regular flu season. And if there are no medications available during regular flu season where people really are sick, and you've got people at home hoarding medications for something that may or may not happen in the future, um, that, that doesn't seem right. Um, if people have a stash of Tamiflu at home, how do they know uh, when they're going to use it? Or, or when it's appropriate to use it. Um, if you get a fever and, and a cough, you know, is, is that the time to take your Tamiflu? Do you take it if you hear that birds are infected in Canada or, or somewhere else in Illinois? And um, the, the, the overwhelming um, likelihood is that you'll take it and there'll be no risk and you'll have wasted your $60 supply of uh, Tamiflu. Um, all drugs have the potential for, um, for the organism that they treat to become resistant, and Tamiflu is no exception. And um, the, the way that organisms become resistant to medication is through incorrect use. Um, it's the haves versus the have-nots. People who can afford to go out and spend $60 on a medication to keep on a shelf will have it, and people who can't afford to do it won't. And um, that's, that's a problem as well. And then there's this issue of shelf life. If you go out today and buy your course of Tamiflu, well, in two years, it's going to be expired, if it even lasts that long. I mean, that, that would be the maximum. And um, as I said, the, the pandemic is something in the future. We can't predict. I mean, we, we say a pandemic will happen because pandemics eventually happen. But if it's going to happen next year or in 20 years' time, nobody can say. And um, again, putting your resources into something with a shelf life is for planning for the future is, is not always a good idea. So that's all I wanted to say. These are some websites where you can get accurate information. Um, the CDC's website, the World Health Organization's website, and the government's pandemic flu website. I've not seen anything that specifically relates pigeons as being at especially high risk for infection. I've not heard any countries describing outbreaks in pigeons. Um, and we, what we, we've generally seen infections in birds is in migratory waterfowl and domestic poultry. Um, I've, as I said, I've, I've not heard of it being a problem um, in pigeons. But even so, I mean, even though the pigeons are out there, we don't touch them much. And um, you're, you're still not looking at the concentration of, of feces and um, surface contamination that you would with like a, a backyard chicken flock. My question is regarding um, uh, for the incubation period. Mm -hmm. The incubation period is different for every kind of virus or the, is, is it same? For the it's the incubation period is different for different types of virus, but for flu viruses, like for example, measles, chicken pox, SARS, they all have different incubation periods, but flu tends to have an incubation period of two to five days. But um, there's some suggestion that it could be a little bit longer for, for H5N1, so I would say maybe two to ten days to be on the maximum, but with most cases would be two to five days. I just wonder what your thoughts are on who should prioritize, who should receive a potential vaccine or any social distancing policies. Do you think that should be a federal government, municipal governments, or doctors and health organizations? Right. Well, you actually asked two very different things. You asked about vaccine prioritization, and you asked about social distancing. Social distancing is not something we prioritize. It's something that's, that's um, imposed on a community. So if we decide to close special events, it'll be closing special events across a whole community. So that's not something that involves prioritization. Um, Prioritization of vaccines and antivirals um, is something that we, we talk about a lot. And I think um, there, there are actually guidelines. There are federal guidelines um, which are available at the pandemicflu.gov in, um, in the HHS pandemic flu plan. But basically, 
the highest priority for vaccines are going to be healthcare workers. Um, doctors, nurses, not even all the healthcare workers, but the doctors and nurses and EMTs who are directly involved with taking care of flu patients because they're at the highest risk for, for getting sick, number one, and because they're a, an, a very important um, resource for, for treating people who are sick and um, helping to control the, the disease. Um, after the healthcare workers, um, there are, then you have to think like, well, um, who do you most need to stay healthy? And you might say that, well, you know, your firemen are, are very important or your police. And, and that's where it gets kind of gray. It's like, you know, who's, who's got a more important job than, than, than somebody else? Um, and you also have to take into account who's at highest risk for getting sick um, and who's at highest risk for dying. Now, um, we have priorities every year for who gets the flu vaccine. And even though every year there's generally enough vaccine for people who want it, um, there's not enough. They, they never make enough vaccine for everyone in the country, and vaccine gets thrown away every year. Um, and then you get years like 2004 where there was enough vaccine for to cover all the people who, who usually get the flu vaccine, but because there was a shortage, everyone's like, oh, we have to get it because there's not enough. And, and then there was a demand that exceeded the supply. But um, people who have um, immune system problems, um, people who have respiratory illnesses, people who, um, who have metabolic diseases like diabetes or heart disease, or, you know, there, there are certain types of medical conditions that if people get the flu, they're more likely to die. And, and those types of people would, would have to be elderly people, would be another one, um, very young children. And, and a lot of this is going to depend on um, the epidemiology of, of the epidemic in that if we see that, you know, um, school-age children are dying more frequently than anybody else, will target to school-aged children. So, so part of it's going to depend on what's actually happening. But, but there's two, two basic um, decision trees. It's like who's, who's most important to keep your society functioning and who's most likely to die of the flu. So that's the vaccine question. The antiviral question is, goes more along the lines of um, do we treat the very sick people or do we give medications to people to prevent them from getting sick? And um, it takes about, it takes 10 pills to, to treat a sick person. Um, a person who's not sick, who you decide to give pills to prevent them from getting sick, well, you have to give them a pill a day for as long as they're exposed, if that's the strategy you're taking. And if we're saying that this is going to be, um, you know, six or eight or 12 weeks, or, you know, you, you can add up the number of pills and it becomes astronomical if you if you try to go the, the prevention routes. There's, there's another way of preventing people, if you say that um, somebody was at a certain place and like say a, a nurse was in the hospital and a patient came in and the nurse was exposed um, and, and now is at high risk of becoming sick, well you can give that person 10 days of pills to prevent them from getting sick, but that's what we call post-exposure prophylaxis as opposed to just this, you know, ongoing, you know, we've got to protect you for the, the duration of the of the pandemic. Um, I think for antivirals, it's going to have to be, you know, sick people in hospitals get the drugs first. Um, and there may be some plan to, you know, if, if outbreaks are going on in facilities like um, nursing homes, we'll have to use drugs there to control those outbreaks. And then possibly, um, if we decide again, like we have to protect our healthcare workers, very limited numbers of people um, may we, we may um, decide to treat them ahead of time, but those decisions haven't been made yet.